He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. I think it's certain that if the Apostle Paul had ever published the greatest hits album, this would have been near the top of the list. This passage in Colossians has been referred to by one writer as the keystone of Paul's Christology. And the keystone, you know, is, is that angled stone at the apex of an archway. And it's, it's the centerpiece, it's the, it's the preeminent stone in place holding everything together. And so I agree with what that writer said. I think that this is uh, very much uh, essential to what Paul understands, who understand, who Paul understands Christ to be, and what Paul understands the gospel to be. So what we'll do this morning is, first of all, approach this passage from kind of a bird's eye view. And we'll take a look at the structure. Um, this is often referred to as a hymn. And that's not necessarily because early Christians sang these verses, but because this is very poetic in its form. And it, there's even a cadence to it in the original Greek. And so it's referred to as a hymn. And so it's part of the larger letter of Colossians, obviously, but it's, it can stand on its own as a nice summary of Paul's uh, Christological theology. So we'll look at the structure, and then we'll look at the scope, which is implied by the structure, and then we'll take some time just to look at each of the two parts. So the structure, as you look there in your Bible, can be divided into two parts, verses 15 through 17 and verses 18 through 20. And this is not so easy to, to see as you read your text, because you're reading from top to bottom. But if you could actually picture in your mind uh, two columns or two panels, Paul is presenting Christ in panel one, verses 15 through 17, and in verses 18 through 20 in panel two. And there's a, a very beautiful symmetry between the two. So notice, first of all, on either side, in verses 15 and 18, Jesus is referred to by the same term. He is the firstborn. So in one instance, Paul writes that he is the firstborn of all creation. And in the second instance, he is the firstborn from the dead. 
So Jesus is presented by Paul as the firstborn, the agent of creation, the firstborn, the agent of reconciliation and new creation. You'll also notice, and you probably picked up on this as I read the passage, this phrase, all things, is repeated throughout. So again and again, Paul says that all things have been created by Christ. That's on the one side. And on the other side, all things have been reconciled to God through Christ. And to further qualify the all things, you'll notice that in verse 16, the all things that Christ created are everything in heaven and on earth. So that is a totality. Heaven and earth is meant to represent all that exists in the created world. And then again in verse 20 at the end, Jesus is presented as the reconciler of all things in heaven and on earth. So that structure reveals to us what this passage is all about. So the structure reveals the scope and the scope is very, very broad. In fact, you can't get much broader than creation and new creation. What, what you essentially have there is all of history encapsulated in this one text. So Paul is addressing on the one hand the original creation and on the other hand the new creation. He's addressing the first things, the protological, and he's also addressing the last things, the eschatological. And so from creation to redemption, <clears throat> which is the whole narrative of Scripture, <clears throat> Paul is putting one person at the center of all that. And that person is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the great theme of this, of this hymn is the lordship, the supremacy of Christ over all creation. From beginning to end, from top to bottom, Jesus is at the center, Jesus is at the heart of it. And Paul presents him as supreme over creation and supreme over new creation. So there's the structure and the scope. Now let's take a look at each of these stanzas, you might say, verses 15 through 17 and verses 18 through 20. So Paul's first, first big point is that Christ has supremacy over the creation. And we see that in verse 15. Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So Jesus, Paul qualifies Jesus as supreme over creation in terms of the fact that he is the firstborn of all creation. 
And that firstborn is further qualified by a reference to Jesus as the image of God. So when we see that term, image of God, anywhere in the New Testament, the alarm bells immediately go off and we're, <clears throat> we should be reminded of the way the Bible begins in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we learn that God created man and he created him in the image of God. He created him in his own image. And so here Paul is referring to Jesus in those terms, in Adamic terms. Jesus is the image of God. And the term firstborn, your initial thought there might be that the firstborn is the first to be born. And that, that word can be used that way. And of course, in the, in the culture of the ancient Near East, there, was, there were special privileges attached to being the firstborn. But that term firstborn takes on additional meaning. In fact, it takes on even greater significance than just being first in time. It actually comes to designate first in rank. The preeminent one is the firstborn. And a good example of that is in Psalm 89, verse 27, where the psalmist writes, looking forward to the, to the messianic king, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. <clears throat> and so you can see there the way that Hebrew poetry is written in parallel. So I will make him the firstborn. That is to say, I will make him the highest of the kings of the earth. So that term firstborn is a designation of rank. It signifies that the one who is firstborn is the preeminent one, is the highest one. And so Paul is describing Jesus here in the first stanza of the hymn in Adamic language. And Adam, after all, was the image of God. He was the one whom God set over all of creation. So Adam, in his own way, had that kind of, not just, he wasn't just created temporally first, but he had that kind of ranking. He had that kind of preeminent status over the created order. Now, in describing Jesus in these terms, Paul, of course, is not implying that Jesus is a creature like Adam. Jesus far surpasses Adam as the image of God and the firstborn of all creation. So how is it that Jesus can be the firstborn? Well, Paul says in verse 16 that it is by him that all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. So Jesus, Paul writes, is the firstborn because he is the agent of creation. Jesus himself, if, if, if God is above the line and all creation is below the line, Jesus himself is on God's side. 
He is not a creature like Adam. The heretic Arius liked to use this particular passage to teach that, that Jesus, firstborn of creation, was in fact a created being. He was below the line of divinity. But that, of course, is not at all what Paul means to say. Jesus is the firstborn in the sense that he is distinct from all creation. He is, in fact, the agent of creation. Christ is the creator and not the creature as Adam was. He has the supreme status of firstborn because creation itself came into being through his agency and for his glory. So those are important prepositions. All things were created by him, through him, and for him. And furthermore, in verse 17, we see that Jesus pre-existed all of this, and even now, moment by moment, is the one who holds all things together and sustains it. So, so Jesus is without question, I think, supreme over creation. Now in transitioning to the second stanza, verse 18, Paul is going to shift his focus. He's going to shift his focus from the original creation to the new creation. So in verse 18 we read that Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now this raises a question. Why two creations? Paul is presenting Jesus as supreme over the original creation and supreme over the new creation. Why are there two? Well, the key, I think, is at the end of that first phrase of verse 18. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, from among those who are dead. Death is what necessitates a new creation. Adam, by his fall, introduced sin and death into the created order. And so it was corrupted. And so now Jesus has come as not only the original creator, the firstborn over creation, but the firstborn from the dead. So so what has Jesus done? Jesus has taken creation out of the state of death and into a state of resurrection life. And he has done that, of course, through his own resurrection. Jesus himself was the firstborn from the dead. And again, that word is an indication not just of Jesus' temporal status as the first to be raised, which he, of course, was, but as his ranking over those who have been raised. So Jesus himself embodies and is supreme in the resurrection age. And Paul refers to him as, in this case, the beginning. 
Now, the, that English word beginning is, is not, it's, it's probably the best one that the translators can come up with, but it's not a, it doesn't really capture what that word actually means. That Greek word arche implies more than just first in time. It, it implies the fact that this is the one who, who went first, who blazed the trail, who paved the way, who opened up the way. So if you, if you think of that in terms of, of pioneers, westward expansion in this country, there's an eastern half of the United States that's settled and peaceful, and then there's an untamed wilderness to the west. And who goes westward? It's not the politicians, it's the pioneers, it's, it's the archaic, it's, it's the one who goes before and opens up the way so that a whole group of people can follow in their train and be joined to them, as it were, in the new land. And so Jesus is that in terms of resurrection life. Jesus is the one who emerged from the grave who himself possessed new life. And in so doing, he launched the new creation. I like the way one writer puts this. He says that because Jesus was the Christ, his resurrection is not an isolated occurrence. But in it, the time of salvation promised in him dawns in an overwhelming manner, as a decisive transition from the old to the new world. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So Christ is supreme over the new creation. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the beginning. And just as he was characterized as the agent of creation, so in verses 19 and 20, he is described as the agent of reconciliation. So notice what Paul says in these verses. For in him, Paul writes, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Notice a couple of things. First of all, notice that the scope in verses 19 through 20 is the same as it was in verses 15 and 16. What Jesus created, Jesus has reconciled. All things, all things in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. So that which was created by Christ has now been reconciled to God through Christ. Jesus, of course, is the one mediator between God and man. He is the one, Paul writes, in whom his fullness was pleased to dwell. So Jesus, the image of God, 
is God-man. He is humanity and he is deity. He is that in one person. And so he is the one qualified to reconcile that which is estranged from the creator. And how has he accomplished this? Well, in verse 20, we see that he made peace by the blood of his cross. And that, of course, is what it means to reconcile. It is to make peace. So that's an important concept in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word shalom is the word for peace in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament prophets, they looked forward to the day when God would, bring, would finally bring peace on the earth. And so you've seen that over the last, you've seen that theme over this holiday season everywhere probably. Peace on earth and goodwill to men. And that just sort of glides right over us because we're so accustomed to that at Christmas time. But that is, that is a fantastic idea if you think about it. That this world that has been so corrupted by sin, that is so dominated by Satan and his powers, that that situation could be completely reversed. That the Lord God in Christ could come in flesh and in weakness die and then in great power rise from the dead and reverse that whole mess and bring life out of death. So Christ has indeed brought shalom. Christ has brought the peace that the Old Testament prophets longed for. He has brought it right into our midst. Now the peacemaking of the cross, we have to distinguish a couple of things here. Because it's clear on one hand that the scope is the same in both stanzas. Jesus is the creator of all things and Jesus is the reconciler of all things. But that reconciliation differs according to the subject. So you can see further down in verses 21 and 22, in terms of redeemed humanity, Paul writes, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So we who belong to Christ, who have put our faith in him, we are part of that redeemed humanity. And so we have been truly reconciled in, in a redemptive way. But the angelic powers that Paul enumerated earlier in the hymn this is not so with them. And we know from chapter 2, verse 15, that the cross for those rebel forces in heaven had this, it had this effect. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So what we have then is not so much a redemption of the entire creation, but a true restoration of the entire creation. So that all who belong to God in Christ have been effectively redeemed 
and reconciled in a saving way. And all those enemies of Christ, both in heaven and on earth, have gotten and will get their due so that justice is meted out perfectly. And creation itself is restored and true shalom reigns. And so that's what we see in verse 18, the reason that Jesus has been raised or the result of Jesus being raised from the dead is that in everything he might be preeminent. His preeminence in the original creation was never truly lost, of course, because God is sovereign and controls all of history for his own glory. But now it has in fact been restored. So what was Christ by right in principle is now his by right in fact because of his accomplished work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. So to conclude, what is this for us? Well, this is good news for us. This is very good news for us. Because who are we? We are the church. Which Paul says in verse 18, Jesus is the head of. We who belong to Christ have been united to Christ. And so there is an organic connection between him who is the firstborn from the dead and all those who are united to him by faith. So Jesus, the head of the church, is our Lord and our King and our Savior and our brother. He is closer to us than anyone can be through the presence of his spirit. And so as we turn the calendar and look to another year, we can walk forward in faith. We can walk forward with confidence and joy because since Jesus is our head, that means we share in the new life of the resurrection. That means we belong not to the old fallen world, but to the new world. It means we have been reconciled to God and transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is supreme. Jesus is supreme over creation. Jesus is supreme over new creation. We thank you, Lord, that in him we are part of the new creation. We anticipate the world to come and we taste it even now. So, Father, we thank you for this word of good news, for this word of hope. And we pray that you will cause it to penetrate deeply into our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.